Dear friends, let's look at Luke chapter 11 and verses 1 through 4 this morning. Let's, let's go ahead and read that passage. Just as a reminder, this is our, our fourth study on this passage, and we will be walking through the third petition in this prayer, which is, give us this day our daily bread. Let's read the passage, beginning in verse 1 in Luke 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Today we're walking through this third petition. Give us each day, our daily bread, and there's two questions that I desire us to answer as we walk through this petition. The first is, what do we mean by daily bread? We'll emphasize in that question both the word daily and the word bread. And secondly, what are we praying for when we say, give us this day our daily bread? So what do we mean by daily bread? Um, it's, it's really surprising that there is an incredible amount of ink that has been spilled over the phrase. The sentence, give us this day our daily bread. Um, <coughs> and one aspect of this um, comes from the language that this is written in because the word daily here can mean Uh, today, but daily in the Greek can also mean um, bread for (coughs) bread for tomorrow. So are we praying that the Lord would give us what we need today or are we not to think beyond today? There are many that have emphasized that, that it says daily here and so that means you're not thinking beyond today. The Lord's teaching you here to only be concerned with what you have Today, you could even bring into that other teaching from Jesus where he says tomorrow will take care of itself Um, because, or are we praying um, for the bread tomorrow because today we already have our bread, but perhaps you're not praying that we would have lunch today because in the other room there's already food for the fellowship meal and then you're praying for tomorrow. Uh, Many of the early church fathers uh, came down really heavily on Uh, this perspective. Um, Entire theological applications um, were based upon the wording that we see within this line of the prayer that we should not be thinking uh, beyond today. We should not be preparing even beyond today. Um, Now, there's other passages that you can look at in the scriptures that will instruct you on how you should uh, steward what you've been given. Um, just think of, think of what the, it says in the Proverbs, that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Now, if I'm going to leave an inheritance for my children's children, I, I'm going to have to have more than what I was going to use in this lifetime. It's going to require maintaining. It's going to require a, a looking after what I have. But what about the term bread? Um, There's been a lot of ink that's been spilt over the term bread within this line. 
of the prayer. What, what exactly is meant by bread? Everyone agrees we're not talking about just normal bread. We're not talking about just wheat and oil and water, yeast, salt, and sugar, but rather it's talking about the, the basic needs of life. Again, many of these early church fathers that were very aesthetic, you know, ascetic in their church practice, um, in the practice of their lives, deduced from this, from this line in the prayer, that we were to just be <coughs> bare, bare minimalists, that there should never be um, an abundance, there should never be more than what you should need at this moment. Um, any excess should be given away almost immediately. There should never be any uh, partaking in anything that is luxurious or is beyond the bare necessities. How we define luxurious could vary from culture to culture, even from person to person. One of the church fathers that I read went so far as to say it's, it's minimum, it's bare necessities, that's it. And he applied it this way. You, you should not be partaking in uh, preserved meats or spiced wines. I thought that was interesting. That those are things that honestly probably wouldn't be very expensive uh, nowadays, but for him, he saw that as a great luxury to be partaking in preserved meats or spiced wines. Um, but they were adamant, adamant that this, this line here in the prayer is just the bare uh, minimum. However, others would look at this line, they would look at this idea of, of bread. You see other passages talking about spiritual bread. Oh, Jesus is even that greater manna that came down from heaven, right? The, the Israelites in the wilderness consumed just physical bread, right? The physical manna, and they died in the wilderness. But those who consumed the bread of Christ continue to, to live um, for eternity. And so they would look at this and say, well, it's only, only spiritual, um, emphasizing <coughs> the emphasis of bread that you see in the passage shortly after this, the spiritual nourishment that you can receive from the Lord. So therefore, we're praying for spiritual nourishment that the Lord would give to us. Others would emphasize even furthermore, say this is merely just talking about the Lord's Supper, that the Lord is, would grant to us himself in the Lord's Supper. And I think after considering many of these various interpretations, it's, it's very important that we understand uh, just kind of some basics of, of hermeneutics. It's very important in our study of scripture, in our, uh, the way we come up with doctrine, the way we systematize doctrine, the way we apply scriptures, um, that we not create such strict applications or doctrines from, from single passages like this, or just um, lines or portions of passages like this. We have a, an idea in hermeneutics or in the way in which we interpret scripture. That's known as the analogy of scripture. That is the idea that when we are interpreting a particular passage in the scriptures, we aren't pretending as though it is there and we're not going to look at the rest of the scriptures as a whole. <clears throat> this even means that we can use other passages that aren't directly in that particular passage to help us to understand that passage. I mean, think of this. If we were to be so strict in our interpretation that we didn't allow any passage that didn't come prior to the passage that we're reading in Scripture, how would we interpret the first line of the Scriptures? In the beginning, God. We say, well, 
I have no other scripture to help me to interpret this. Well, you have the whole Bible to help you to interpret that, and you have the entirety of general revelation to help you to interpret the line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But even just the sentence or a phrase like this, to go and to pull it out and pull out a, a line like, give us this day our daily bread, and, and to do that you can't ever have a nice meal, someone can't have a glass of wine, they can't, they can't have a nice steak, or in some way it's, it's sinful or unwise to even consider uh, what you will do tomorrow or, or what you will uh, participate in tomorrow or to plan or to save is, um, is, is absurd. It, it's not wise. It, it, it gives you the feeling that you're really um, applying something here, but it's, it's, a, it's a great fundamentalism. It's um, an unwise application of scripture that we must be cautious of. <clears throat> We must be mindful of these things. Um, we're instructed not to be anxious. We're, we're instructed not to be fretting about tomorrow. When we're praying this, we're praying as one who is going to the Lord, the one who provides our provision. But praying is not fretting. Um, anyone that has real responsibilities in their lives, anyone who has others to care for or look after, is going to have concern for tomorrow not fretful, anxious concern, but you're going to be mindful of these things. You're going to be making uh, preparations. Um, and we're in nowhere instructed in the scriptures to have no concern for tomorrow at all or to make no preparation for tomorrow at all. You would be an unwise steward of what God has given you if you approached your life in that way. So rather than looking at a passage like this, and really divorcing it from its context and interpreting the rest of the scriptures through this lens, which ends up happening. You've got to then pull a bunch of other scriptures that say something different through this lens because you've, you've, you've placed yourself in this little box with a passage like this. It's better to let the Word of God uh, influence how we see a passage like this and to let this passage bless us in our prayers, you know, to bless us how we go about praying because that's the purpose of prayer and that's the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage is to inform your prayers, to instruct you in, in how it is that you pray. The purpose of this passage is not to tell you what foods you can eat and what foods you can't eat. Uh, it's not telling you whether or not you save for retirement, whether or not you, you make plans as to what classes you will take. You know, uh, a couple semesters from now in school, um, there's many passages that would be helpful in that area. So, so what do we mean when we're praying here? When we pray, give us this day our daily bread. What do we mean by, by bread? Um, this is talking about our, our, our needs, that which we need in life that which we need to survive and to, to function in life, to, to serve God and to serve other people. We are remembering that God is the source of our provision. Um, it very directly has to do with our food, but it's not only talking about our food, it's talking about the needs that you have in life. John Calvin was very helpful on this passage. He's making comments on this passage and the one in Matthew as well where you see the exact same line in the, um, 
the rendition of the Lord's Prayer within the book of Matthew, but John Calvin says this, but here it has a still more extensive meaning, for we ask not only that the hand of God may supply us with food, but that we may receive all that is necessary for this present life. So you're trusting God to grant to you what you need to even serve him in this life, to do the good things in this life. It is a a trusting in who God is. J.C. Ryle makes this point. He says, the word bread includes everything that our bodies require. We acknowledge our complete dependence on God for life and breath and all things. We ask him to take charge of us and to provide for us in all that concerns this world. Basil makes this point, he says, for thy daily bread, namely that which serves for our daily wants, trust not in thyself, but fly to God for it, making known to him the necessities of thy nature. This is a reminder that even though you may be the one that goes to work, you may be the one that, that, that serves God, all right? you may serve your employer, you may serve others, you may gain an income from that, You are trusting in God even for your opportunity to provide for yourself. Recognizing the gifts that you have that God has granted those to you. The certifications you have gotten or the certifications maybe that you desire to have. God is giving you those opportunities. Those are provisions that God is giving to you that we must remember the source of all that we have. Philip Ryken says this, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to know the difference between our needs and our greeds. In the daily life of our prayer, our main petition is for things that we truly need. This isn't an instruction that you can never have anything nice, you know, and again, that's can sometimes be a matter of opinion, you know, anything. There are, there are wealthy people in the scriptures. It's not a teaching that no one can ever be wealthy. Abraham wasn't condemned for his wealth. Noah wasn't condemned for his wealth. Joseph of Arimathea wasn't condemned for his wealth, but rather these men were commended for the ways in which they used what God gave them to glorify God. Remember, like Job, the Lord may give, the Lord may take away, but our trust is in God (coughs) and his provision. Let's be mindful of that in this prayer, that even the use of bread here does remind us this is talking about our needs. You know, that which, is, that which is, is necessary in this life. It's an excellent proverb that I think informs us in some of this as well. There's a, pro, there's a prayer we see in Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. It says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's a reminder of, in this proverb, of the dangers of excess and the dangers of want. One who is wanting, one who is lacking, has the temptation to steal. One who is fully provided for at that time may begin to trust in self, may forget who the Lord is. Now, both are dangers. It's not a reality that just merely having physical blessing results in spiritual blessing or merely having physical lack results in spiritual blessing. It's your response to these circumstances. But we must see even the words of Paul, that Paul learned to trust in the Lord regardless of his circumstances, regardless of the provision he was given, regardless of the comforts that he had at this time. 
Friends, that's a sign of spiritual maturity, that you can serve God when you're lacking. It's a, it's a sign of spiritual maturity that you can serve God when you have great abundance and blessing, that, you're, that you're, your want would not distract you from the one that provides and has provided, and that your abundance may not distract you from one who has provided. And so many times these situations can draw our eyes to ourselves, draw our eyes to our own hearts, and that is destructive. That is, that is harmful to you spiritually, that your minds begin to focus on the creation rather than the creator. The, your minds and hearts begin to focus on yourself rather than God. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, and verses 10 through 13. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that <clears throat> now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but now you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is a passage that overwhelmingly is yanked out of its context and applied in all kinds of ways, whether it be someone running a political campaign, whether it be someone running a marathon or playing a basketball game. And these are all ways in which Paul was not applying these. Paul was sitting in prison as he wrote this. Paul was suffering greatly at this time, but Paul is one who has had abundance and he has had lack. He has been comfortable and he has been in great and desperate difficulty in pain and, and suffering. And he has found that the Lord has taught him in bringing him through these circumstances and using even these difficulties and circumstances for Paul's good, that he can learn, that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, that he can endure these things <coughs> because of what Christ has done for him, because of the power of the Spirit of God working within him. So we see this idea of, of, of bread. We see this idea of God's provision for us and this prayer that we have, both for the, the physical and for the spiritual, all that is necessary in life is contained here within this line. All that you would need to rightly serve God is contained here within this line. So second question is this. Um, what are we praying for when we say, give us this day our daily bread, being remembering that we're praying for physical and for spiritual. We're praying for today and for tomorrow that the Lord would grant to us what we need. And I want us to remember where this lies in this particular context, where the, this, this scriptural context, where it lies in this particular prayer. I think it's very important that we recognize that this is the, the third petition. <clears throat> this is not the first thing that was stated um, in this prayer. It's not the first petition. Uh, it's not even the first statement. This is the petition with an acknowledgement of who God is and, and, and what he is doing. Only after recognizing who God is and what he is doing does the petitioner then go on to ask for these personal needs. So pay attention to that. First, you are acknowledging who God is and you're acknowledging that God has his plan and his purpose, and now you're praying for yourself that God would grant you this desire that you have, but you're asking what you ask for with the understanding of who God is and what God is doing. This doesn't have to be strict. 
We, we, we don't need to take this and run away and just, you know, create a, a list of rules that your prayer has to meet these particular guidelines each and every time or honestly distract yourself when other people are praying to make sure they're checking off the boxes and you're not even rightly praying in, in, in your mind um, and in the spirit for what the person is, is praying for. Um, it doesn't mean that every time you pray or anytime anyone prays, it has to fit this exact model with these exact lines happening this exact way. You can find prayers in the Bible that don't fit perfectly into this particular model. Someone could be in danger and just say, Lord, help me. Well, that would be an acceptable prayer. But even in your prayer of Lord, help me, Lord, save us, Lord, grant us this provision. Perhaps you're in a, a dangerous situation. Perhaps you're in a, a scary situation. You just pray the Lord to help you. We, we must pray with this model prayer in mind, though. We must pray in our minds that we are petitioning the Lord. We're petitioning the Lord as Father. That's where this prayer begins. Father, we're petitioning the Lord and remembering that he is our Father. He has provided for us. He has shown love to us. He has purchased us for himself through the work of Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ. He's granted us life if you are in fact in Christ. The Lord has granted you life in Christ Jesus. He has adopted you into his family. That's why you're able to cry out, Abba, Father. So you're not going to God as one who is a stranger. We are not going to him and seeking to appease him in some way. Be cautious of that. We, we can ease into this legalism, this idea that, that we need to appease God in some way. We, we need to do something to gain God's attention so that we can gain blessings. I heard someone say once that, well, you know, if, if, you, don't, if you don't tie to the church, if you don't give to the church, the Lord's going to get that money somewhere and you're going to end up with a flat tire. Well, that's, that's not a healthy way to, to, to look at That's not a good reason to give to the ministry of Christ. And, and furthermore, that's not a, a healthy understanding of your relationship with God. Like he's just there just trying to crack down on you at any moment. Or, or he's just happy with you or angry with you from one moment to the next. We, we are giving to the work of Christ because of what Christ has done to us. Because he has, he has saved us. He has granted us life. As Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. See that? That's the blessing. You are, you, are, you are serving God. You are doing these good works because, as we saw in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2, you were saved by grace and through faith. So you were saved unto good works. But won't there be good works if you're saved? There absolutely will. But the motivation for doing these works is because of what God has done for you, because that is the best way that you can live. John Calvin makes this point on this passage. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, whenever we engage in prayer, there are two things to be considered, both that we may have access to God and that we may rely on him with full and unshaken confidence, his fatherly love toward us and his boundless power. We are not praying to God like a, a pagan praying to a pagan deity. We are not trying to appease God as though we can do so much and then 
curry his favor, do so much, and then get his attention. <coughs> or then give to him in some way and then get something in return. There are blessings, absolutely, for walking in obedience to God. Sometimes they are earthly, and sometimes they are going to be eternal. Sometimes you can actually have penalties in this life because we live in a fallen world, because you're walking in obedience. But you must not look at the Lord here as though um, you're appeasing him. You must not be like, in this. you wouldn't go to this extreme, but you think of the prophets of Baal with Elijah and how they were praying to Baal and they began to injure themselves. They began to get his attention and Elijah began to mock them. You know, their, their God that was like, you know, maybe he's in the bathroom. That He began to mock them and, and joke with them. Maybe he's, he's tied up at the moment. Maybe you need to do something louder and get his attention. And they were cutting themselves and injuring themselves. And we are, certainly you wouldn't do any of that to get God's attention, but we can fall into this perspective as though we've got to do something for God so we get something back from him. No, the Lord has saved you and given you life and the motivation that you should have for um, serving him is first and foremost that he has saved you. Okay, there is a, a blessing that is promised to you. It may be in this life. It may be in the life to come. We don't have a promise that walking in obedience is always going to result in earthly blessings. But we do have a promise that it will be repaid back to us in glory even if we lose something in this life because we walk in obedience. So we're, we're first remembering that in asking God to provide for us, in asking for this provisional need that we have, going to him as Father, we're also remembering that we're praying this under hallowed be your name. Okay, we're going to him as, as Lord, not only one who is his Father, but one who is Lord of all. We're praying this in humble respect to the Lord who is sovereign, the, the one who is the giver of good gifts, the one who is powerful, the one who is omnipotent, the, Lord, the one who is able and willing to do all that he desires to do. Now, there are some errors that people walk into within this culture, and there is a, a big habit of this where people will think that in some way they're, they're some kind of a little God and they need to be making demands of God. People will go so far as to say, well, God created things by speaking them into existence. And so you too are like a little God and you can speak things into existence. And this will then begin to affect how the person prays. I remember years ago, I was getting ready to go out. We were, I was one of my first times doing street evangelism and it was a kind of an eclectic group. We had people from... Uh, different denominational backgrounds, different uh, strands of Christianity. And I was praying in this group, um, and, this, and this man began to just demand what God was going to do. I mean, he was, he was speaking, he was speaking almost like a, a, a rebellious teenager to a parent, demanding what God is going to do. And you are going to grant me this, and you are going to do this, and this is what you're going to do, and you are going to protect us, and you are going to do this. Just remember thinking like, I do think I need to step away from this group because it's dangerous to stand over here. Something, something harmful is going to happen to everyone in this uh, prayer group. There's some within the Word of Faith movement that have gone so far as to just, just embody this, this idea. So much so that they argue that praying in a biblical way, praying according to the will of God, 
praying even, Lord, if it be your will that I get this house, or Lord, if it be your will that I get this job, is showing a lack of faith. One of the most incredible examples of this, and I'm not recommending that you go listen to this, this sermon, but it's one by a man named Jesse Duplantis, and he has this sermon called the Gospel Casino, and it's many decades old, and he's preached it many times over, so there's different uh, versions of it. But, but he says this in his very eccentric and charismatic way, that whenever you go to the Lord and you pray, Lord, if it be your will, it is like going up to a spiritual slot machine and, and putting your coin in and, and pulling down the lever, and it goes click, 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 and, and maybe you're going to get the three apples, and maybe you're not. He says, you're playing the gospel casino by making such a prayer. Instead, he recommends that you tell God exactly what he is going to do, that you believe that God is going to do, not his will, but, but exact, that his will is exactly what you want, that you have to believe that he is going to do exactly what you're praying. Look at the pressure that you put on someone, someone who is struggling, someone who has cancer, maybe praying for themselves, the, 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 the lives that have been hurt by this kind of false teaching, this kind of a, a false theology, this idea that it's all about me and you pray that the Lord, how many of you have prayed for something and it's not been granted to you? And it's something that was very serious. Maybe in eternity to come, it may pale in comparison to eternity. All of our problems really do in, in light of eternity. But at the time, it was serious. It could have been a child that was injured. It could have been a great financial loss. It could have been a job. It could have been the destruction of your home. And you've prayed for something. It's not been granted to you. And then the person begins to think through this interpretation, this theology that they're given from the Word of Faith movement. And they get this idea that, well, I guess I just wasn't believing enough. I just wasn't trusting in God enough. My child's dead now because I just wasn't believing enough. Or I'm dying, or my spouse is dying of cancer because I just wasn't believing in God enough. That's dangerous. That is, that is a guilt that is placed upon someone that has no business being there. We will have troubles in this life. We will have sorrows in this life. We, we will have sufferings in this life, sometimes the Lord grants to us a removal of these things, and sometimes the Lord grants to us the grace to persevere through these times. But remember this, friends. What we can glean from this and, and, and so many other passages from Scripture is that if you pray according to the will of God, unlike Jesse Duplantis in the Gospel Casino, if you will pray according to the will of God, you will always get what you pray for. Because his will will be done always and at all times. And we should desire to walk according to the will of God, to, to trust in his goodness that we could be like Paul, like the passage I read of Paul earlier, that you could learn to be content in all situations, all circumstances, that at times of, of plenty, you would not be distracted, you would not seek to, you would not forget who the Lord is, the one who's provided it to you, that in times of want, you would not be tempted to that which is sinful. First John 5, 14 and 15 says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know 
that we have the request that we have asked for. That's the promise that you have. If you will pray according to his will. Not my will be done, but your will be done. We saw Jesus demonstrate that even in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he prayed, may this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. He did not desire within his humanity to walk through the pain and the struggles that he did. He did not desire to be beaten. He did not desire to be humiliated. He did not desire to be abandoned by his friends. Who would? Why would anyone desire that? But he did desire, first and foremost, to glorify God. He did desire to walk in obedience to the will of the Father, that he would lay down his life and be a propitiation for the many, that you could have life, that we could live in Christ Jesus. If you pray according to the will of God, you will always get what you desire if you are trusting in God. You see this also in the, in the version of the Lord's Prayer within the book of, of Matthew. We're going to him as a sovereign Lord, as God of the universe. We're not going and we're not demanding anything. We're not yelling God to give us this or that. And we're also tying to that remembering that we go to him and ask for this particular provision. We're asking for what we desire here and to further unpack what we've been talking about is that we're praying this your kingdom come. We're praying, we're praying that God do what God is going to do. All right, we're praying that God's kingdom would come. We're praying that the Lord would bring all things to the submission of Christ Jesus. That every knee would bow to Christ. That the Lord would redeem this world, would save this world, would remake this world, would bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And we're praying that he would bring all things to submission to Christ and praying first and foremost that he would be beginning in our hearts. That even in what we're praying for, what we're desiring God to grant to us at this time, <clears throat> that God would be e using even this, this difficulty we have, this request, this petition that we have for God at this time, he'd be using even this <coughs> for our sanctification for our good, that, that far beyond whatever we may desire or think we need or think what is best for us at this time, that God's will would prevail, that God would accomplish his purpose. Tertullian recognizes this reality and how it is that this prayer is laid out. He says, divine wisdom arranged this order of the prayer with an exquisite choice. After the matters that pertain to heaven, that is, after the name of God, the will of God, and the kingdom of God, it should make a place for our petition for our earthly needs as well. So we're praying that. We're praying according to God's will. That even if it's not God's will for us to receive what it is that we desire, what we think is best at this moment, that, that God's will would be done. Because God may have a greater purpose in not granting us our petition. I mean, friend, think about it. Are, are there times that you can think of where you have prayed something specifically from the Lord? You have asked the Lord for something in particular, and it wasn't granted to you. It wasn't granted to you. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was something financial. Maybe desired to move somewhere else. And, and you're able to look back, and you're able to see the wisdom of God in not granting that to you. 
You're able to see the goodness that God brought about in not granting that to you. You're able to see that the consequences that may have been there if that had been granted to you. And you're able to, to just have a glimpse there into the mind of God at that moment. You're able to have just a glimpse there into God's, God's provision for you at that time and not granting to you what you were certain you needed, what you were certain was, was necessary. Now, it's easy to look at that in hindsight, and it's easy to speak of these things and just, you know, just didactically speak of them or to speak of them theoretically, but, but it's difficult in the time of trial. We, we, must, we must be honest there. It's difficult in the time of trial to be praying in this way because you begin to ask yourself, why? Why would I not be given this? Why would it happen this way. It's hard for us to make sense sometimes out of why God is doing what God is doing, why God has decreed things to be the way that, the way that things are. But who are we to judge the Lord? And which of us would be a counselor to the Lord? Which of us would, would God go to and ask, ask our opinions? I keep going to those in the word of faith because they are some of the people that have so abuse this practice of, of prayer and communion with God in prayer. I remember Kenneth Copeland one time was talking about a conversation that he was having with God. Not that he was praying, but rather they were, according to him, talking back and forth. And in this conversation, and again, he's just kind of, I don't know, getting ready for work or whatever. And just, you know, God's just talking back and forth. And he's standing there. He's not on his knees. He's not, he's not on the floor, you know, you know before the Lord, as the Lord's revealing himself, they're just having this casual conversation, uh, almost like a husband and a wife would be talking to each other, or two friends talking one to another. And within this conversation, Kenneth Copeland says that the Lord began to ask him his opinion, began to ask him what, what he should do, how he should go about something in particular. And Kenneth began, oh, I don't know. Let me think about that, Lord. Let me begin to ponder this. Think of the foolishness. Why would you worship a God like a God that needs you? Who would be the Lord's counselor? First, as though the Lord needs to think. He knows all things. Look at what the, such a statement so casually made. Regardless of the fact that he's not recognizing who God is. You remember uh, Isaiah when he was before the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And he saw his sin. He saw the sin of his people. He was broken. Just this casualness of this man talking about this conversation that he's having with God. But then you even see what he's doing to just even the doctrine of God. This, this idea that God is coming to you, asking your opinion, asking for your help, trying to see how he can best do this, trying to solve a problem. God doesn't think he knows all things. And if he were to think, he wouldn't go to you and ask your opinion he wouldn't ask you what, what he should do. God doesn't hunger. He doesn't need to be fed. But remember Psalm 50, if he were hungry, he wouldn't go after you. He, he owns all the cattle. He could eat all the cattle that he wants. He doesn't need to eat them. He has all the wisdom that there is. And if he needed any, he would just go gain it for himself. He wouldn't go to you, you and your finite mind. No. No, remembering these things. Remembering this reality that, that, that the Lord is good, the Lord is sovereign. And the Lord will bring his will to pass. Our desire is that we're praying in this petition 
that the Lord would even use us at this time, at this trial, in what we're asking for at this time, for his purpose, that he would be glorified, that his redemptive purpose would be demonstrated, that his sovereignty would be shown, that his eternal purpose in bringing the kingdom of God forward would be demonstrated. Remember, the Lord is using even sinful actions of people to accomplish his purpose. God is using even sinful actions of others to bring about his good purpose in the lives of others. We've talked through this extensively. We saw this in the life of Joseph and the way in which his, his brothers sent him into slavery and that resulted in their, their, them being saved from starvation and the rest of the world being saved. We see the Lord using even the sinful actions of other people in, 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 the, in the crucifixion of Christ. Well, the Lord ordained that certain people would, would make judgments on Christ, that certain people would do sinful actions that resulted in Christ being placed upon the cross, that resulted in us being saved. And we can ask ourselves why, but we can remember these ways in which the Lord has used difficulty for his purpose, that all things, as we read in Romans 8, all things work for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're asking in this request, we're praying according to the will of God. We're praying even in what we request of God that your kingdom would come, rightly acknowledging who he is, praying that God would use even the difficulties that he sovereignly brings in our lives to humble us, to bless us with a right perspective. And he's doing that. He's doing that. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he loves you. He desires that you would not cling to the things of this world. He desires that you would be clinging to him. He desires that you would trust in him as the source of all provision, as the source of all goodness. And the Lord will use difficulty in our lives to accomplish that good purpose. The Lord will even discipline us in times of difficulty to rightly orient us, to give us proper perspective. You know, a parent that just let their kid run around in the street with no concern whatsoever, and that parent may say, oh, I love my children. I love all my children. You see, your kid's running in the street. Other people are out here trying to get your child, and you're doing nothing. Oh, but I love my children. Well, you're not acting as though you love your children. You should go and get your child. You should discipline your child. You should make your, your child submit to this. This is dangerous. And the same is true for the Lord. The Lord loves you. The Lord loves you. The Lord will go and he will get you and he will pull you back like, like he will grab that lost sheep as one who he cares for. As the father would discipline the son, the Lord will discipline you. Not because you're really bad and he wants to get on to you. Not because he's really angry with you, but because he loves you and he cares for you. And he desires what is best for you. And that which is best for you is himself. So we are approaching the Lord in this pattern in this model because it rightly orients us to who he is as our father, as sovereign Lord, and as the God who is redeeming the world, reminding us of who he is, who he is and what he is doing and who we are within this story, who we are within his, his greater purpose, that God's purpose extends beyond whatever I am going through at this time, but yet even what I'm going through at this time is a part of God's greater purpose. And we can trust in him. 
And, and we can remember this is, this is a corporate prayer. This isn't just, this isn't us just individually, but very specifically, this model applies I would say to individual prayer, it applies to a prayer in a family. It should inform us in our prayers and how we go to the Lord. But it's, this is very much a corporate prayer. This is our, is how we, we see this. Philip Ryken says this, we're not praying for ourselves as individuals, but ourselves as a church. The Lord's prayer is a family prayer for the people of God, a corporate prayer for a covenant community. Although we are certainly to use it in our own personal prayer times, Jesus gave us this prayer to offer with it a prayer one for another in the church. So we're praying in such a way that all of our hope is not just in what we're praying for at this time in this provision or this particular desire or need that we have, but rather that God would be our treasure, that our treasure would be in Christ, that Christ would be the one that is first and foremost in our desires that we would glorify him. Jesus says that, does he not? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's talking here about where your heart is. Not the, the fact that you, you have possessions, but where your heart is in regard to those possessions. And not merely in possessions, but even possessions that you may desire. Even things that you may desire in your life. Where is your heart in connection to these things? Is your religion destroyed when you lose something financially? Is your religion destroyed when you don't get something in particular that you want? You have a small view of God and his purpose if that is your perspective. It is harmful to you if something like that happening is, is damaging your relationship with God. It is destructive to you. It is a source we have seen before of, of great anxiety because we see from Jesus the teaching on anxiety following this passage here regarding where your treasures are. So he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is in God, if your hope is in God, if your hope is in who God is as Redeemer, who God is as Lord, who God is in, ac in accomplishing his good purpose and bringing his kingdom forward, then your hope is in him regardless of what you are granted in your prayer. But when your heart is tied to the things of this world, when your heart is so engulfed and encapsulated by this world that is changing, by the, the, the waves of this world that are going back and forth, it will result in great anxiety and frustration. See that there in the very next verse in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food, is not the body more than clothing. He is tying this instruction that therefore there not to be anxious is directly tied to where the things of this life are tied to your heart, where the desires of your heart are. If your heart is tied to the things of this world, it will bring great anxiety to you when things don't go the way that you want them to, when things don't go how you think they should go. Consider these things. If you want a recipe for anxiety, then, then you would place your hope in the things of this world. It is an absolute recipe for anxiety and for frustration. If you're one who feels like you need to control each and every aspect of your life, and then even further than that, each and every aspect of everyone else's life around you, it's going to be a source of great anxiety. This week is a great week to mention that because we will have Thanksgiving week coming up, which is an excellent time. It's a time when families get together. It is a time which, if you understand the history, it is not because the Native Americans and the pilgrims had a meal together after a difficult winter. <clears throat> it was rather put forward because um, founding fathers and presidents had said there should be, George Washington was the first to say this, that there should be a day when the people get together and thank God for the country that they have been given. And it was, it was casually practiced over the years and then it was ultimately instituted as a holiday, I think by um, President Lincoln. And so that's the idea that is there, but many times, these times where you aren't around family so often, then you're around them again, it can be a source of frustration and anxiety where people are trying to control each and every aspect or you haven't been around each other for a year and now we've got to find everything that we are going to argue about. It's so, we, the meal may not be perfect. You may not have everything exactly as you want it, but if your goal is to be the person that's controlling each and everything and there's two of you in the family, then there's going to be great friction that is there. And this short amount of time that you have around each other will be one of, of anxiousness and frustration. There can be freedom from anxiety in Christ. It's in Christ that you can have freedom. We, we, I believe that we see this idea even in this petition, in this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and how it is placed under the other petitions, how it is even placed under the salutation of a father, remembering what the Lord has done, remembering what the Lord has granted to you. If you are in fact in Christ Jesus, Romans 5.1, you have peace with God because of what Christ has done. You're not like the false religions. It's not like the false religions that say, I hope I have peace with God. I hope when I die that I have peace with God. I hope when I die that, well, you know, maybe after going through purgatory for a little while, then I will be accepted into the kingdom of God. No, it says if you're in Christ, therefore you have peace with God. And that peace with God should affect every other aspect of life. That you may not be tied to the things of this world. That God may use even the difficulties in life for your sanctification and for your growth and for his good purpose. Because as we know in Christ, you have freedom. In Christ, you can be free. Indeed, Christ has provided to us. Even when we go to the Lord 
in prayer for provision, we are remembering the provision that God has made through Christ. Remember who Christ is, that you were dead. You were hopeless. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses. The wrath of God abides over us. For we are a people who are made in the image of God, but we don't rightly bear his image. We break his law. The Bible says, do not lie. Ninth commandment, do not bear false witness, but we lie. God's not even able to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. That's what the scriptures say. It's contrary to his character. He would have to be God and not be God at the same time, which isn't possible. God will always be God. And he has made us to be a people that don't lie. But we bear false witness that God has told us, do not steal. God has granted stewardship of particular possessions to particular people at particular times. And to violate that is to break God's law. God has given us standards whereby we are to live. And our problem is that we've broken them. We have violated God's holy law. And we must remember, though God is Father to those that are his, he is sovereign Lord. We prayed, hallowed be your name. It is a reminder that God is just. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's the consequences of breaking the law of God. It's not just talking about a physical death. We all die physically because of sin. That is true. But it's talking about a spiritual death. Ezekiel says the soul that sins shall die. This is talking about a spiritual death. The wrath of God is abiding over all who are not in Christ. If you are not in Christ, if you have not seen your sin, the seriousness of your sin, and turned from it and trusted in him, the wrath of God is over you. See, but God has granted provision. God has granted a means whereby you can be saved. God has shown his love and kindness that he may be just and justifier. The provision that he's given is Christ Jesus. Christ clothed himself in flesh and walked as a man. Christ lived and fulfilled the law in every way. And Christ took upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God. Whoever trusts upon him repents of their sin and trust upon him, will be saved. That is my desire for you, dear friend, that you would see this, that you would trust in him, that you would be saved. My desire for you, dear Christian, is that you would remember the provision God has given to you, that greater provision that is greater than anything you could ever want in this life, anything physical you could ever need. The greater spiritual need has been granted to you. And then you have a trust, you have a hope that this life that we're in isn't our be-all and end-all. We have a great eschatological hope that God is going to make all things new, and our prayer is that he would be using even us now to accomplish his good purpose. He'd be using even difficulties at this time to accomplish his good purpose, but that we would remember that we have in the Lord a Father that loves us and cares for us. He is a holy God. He is a just God. He is just and justifier, and he is bringing about his good purpose here. We bring our petitions to him in prayer through that means, that narrow gate that has been provided to us in Christ Jesus, where you need not go to another person. You need not go to another mere man to, to reach God, but Christ, that greater high priest, has made that bridge between God and man. It's in Christ that we have that greater provision.
and that hope that regardless of what we walk through, Christ is sovereign and Christ is good. And we can know that God loves us and cares for us through what he has done in Christ Jesus. Remember Christ and trust in Christ, even in these times of want, even in your desire for provision, praying that God's will would be done, even in these times of difficulty. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you grateful for the blessing that you've given to us, the provision that we have in Christ Jesus, the sufficiency of Christ. We thank you for all Christ has done and accomplished on our behalf. We pray that you'd be using even the difficulties in life to accomplish your good purpose. We thank you for the love that you've shown to us in Christ Jesus and the blessing that he is, the goodness that has been granted to us. We thank you that you redeem even the pain and difficulty in life to accomplish your good purpose, that even our sorrows and struggles and pain are not wasted, but they accomplish your good purpose and they all work for our good. We pray this in the name of our blessed Lord, Christ Jesus, amen.